Today, church, we get the wonderful opportunity to be able to have Randy back with us as he shares again. Um, many of you guys know Randy as he is, um, he's been up here once, um, kind of uh, troubleshooting for, uh, for Pastor Matt. He's going to continue doing that for us as he opens up God's word to us, I believe, in Psalms 122. So be ready. Here it comes. I was saying it was a different psalm, but thank you. No. Thank you, thank you. Good morning. It's good to be with you. We've been praying for Matt and Carrie. I keep sending him emails, and he's very rude in his responses. It comes back, Randy, I'm not here. But uh, we really appreciate you as a congregation blessing your pastor and his family with a sabbatical. What a wonderful gift it is. Um, thank you for doing that. Last time I spoke to you was in May, and since that time in May, I've been in Germany and Brazil. Just got back from Brazil about a week ago. In Germany, I was with, I think, uh, one of your mission partners, uh, Stephen Collier, and uh, also his sister-in-law, Joy. And they went along to Germany to meet the Ukrainian refugees. And uh, I, I can tell you that uh, our support of these mission partners is so important. Uh, Stephen and Joy were able to talk to these Ukrainian refugees who are just broken people and give them some hope and joy. Uh, at one point, Stephen pulled out his guitar and was singing some songs, and, and the Ukrainians were just weeping. So he was singing them in his language. So thank you for your support of their work and continue to uh, pray for them as they head to Germany. Uh, they're settling in Germany. In fact, I think they left yesterday for Germany. I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 122. Psalm 122 in your Bible, it's right about in the middle of the Bible. And we'll be reading that in a moment. But I wanted to bring up a study that was done in 2015 entitled, Why Loneliness May Be the Next Big Public Health Issue. This was written in 2015. It was a study from Brigham Young University, and it says this. Loneliness kills. That's the conclusion of a new study. They're sounding the alarm on what could be the next public health issue. The subjective feeling of loneliness increases the risk of death by 26%, according to the new study. Social isolation or lacking social connection and living alone were to be found even more devastating to a person's health and feeling lonely, respectively increasing mortality risk by 29 to 32%. This is something to be taken seriously, it said. This should come to us as a public health issue. Now, I'm, I'm reading that to point out something that's obvious. We've seen this through the pandemic. Uh, loneliness... And social isolation can be really difficult for us because we're made in the image of God and he wired us 
or relationship. Which would make you think that people would say, well, church, church would be a good thing to to be involved in because that's a place where you meet friends and develop a support network and grow in your faith. But yet, uh, even though church going is still fairly popular, the numbers of people going to church is declining, and we hear a lot of reasons for people not going to church. My parents forced me to go when I was young, and I rejected it when I got older. But well, my parents forced me to go too. Uh, there's too many hypocrites in the church, I've heard. And I usually tell them, well, you're looking at one. We all tend to put masks on. Hi, do we are. Here's a good one. It's the only day I have to sleep in and read the paper. I, I get that. There was a woman who tried to get her husband up on a Sunday morning. Get up and go to church. He said, I don't want to go. And he rolled over in bed. She said, you've got to get up and go to church. He said, I don't know the songs. People are grumpy. I don't know anybody. Give me one reason why I need to go to church. And she said, you're the pastor. (laughs) Been there, done that. The Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, remind us of our spiritual journey. And the psalm we're coming to today, why we need to worship. The Psalms start out, Psalm 120, with a man who's broken because he's in exile. He has people in his neighborhood who are lying to him and he lives in violence, and he makes a decision, I'm leaving. Psalm 121, he looks up in the mountains, where am I going to find help? And he said, my help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And he starts out in a journey, a long, dangerous journey. And then we come to Psalm 122, when this pilgrim arrives in the city of Jerusalem. He's overwhelmed by what he sees there. It's as if he's standing within the gates, taking a selfie. He is so excited to be in Jerusalem. And in this psalm, we're going to learn why worship is so vital for us. So, I hope your Bibles are open with mine. Let's read together Psalm 122. Hear the word of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. 
Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Father, we thank you for this psalm, and we pray that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to your truth. Help us to remember how important and vital worship is. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you can see by reading this that there are clues about what the structure of this psalm is. Uh, For instance, three times the word house is used. Verse 1, verse 5, and verse 9. In verse 1 and 9, it's the house of the Lord. In verse 5, it's the house of David. So you see uh, three parts to this song. It's really a song. He comes in in the first two verses, and he's just overwhelmed at being in Jerusalem. It's a sense of joy there. I rejoiced. And then when you come to verses 3 through 5, you see the psalmist reflecting on the fact that worship is commanded. We actually sit under the rule of God in worship. And then in the last few verses, verses 6 through 9, we find this prayer of the pilgrim, praying for the health and well-being of his city and nation. Here's what I would say we learn from this. This is the main idea. We learn from this psalm that we, who are God's people today, ought to prioritize worship for three reasons. First, it brings joy. Second, it unifies us under the Word of God. And third, it fuels our prayer life. And as you know, God works through our prayers. So let's look at it. There's encouragement here for us. Why worship? Well, the first reason is worship is to be joyful and anticipated. Psalm 122, verses 1 and 2, tell us that. He says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. It may surprise us that they love to worship so much. After all, going to Jerusalem three times a year was commanded. In some ways, we say, well, it seemed like it was forced. They had to go to these three festivals. And what were those three festivals? Passover, Feast of Fruits, First Fruits, and Tabernacles. And why did they have to go to Jerusalem for these feasts? Well, there were reasons for the joy. The feasts reminded them of God's goodness in the Exodus, how God had freed them from captivity to the Egyptians, and then how God had carried them through during the conquest and the Exodus travels all the way to the Promised Land. So out of a sense of joy, they loved to come to God's house to remember what God had done 
in their history. And it was anticipated. He said, we get to go to God's house. This, of course, uh, originally began in the book of Exodus in the tabernacle, Exodus 23. Later, the temple that was built by Solomon. And their feet are standing in the gates, and he's taking this selfie. And in the backdrop, we can see the temple. And he's just joyful to be in Jerusalem to be able to worship God. Is that the way we came to worship this morning? I had the privilege of going to the Together for the Gospel conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And by the way, there's something that's just stunning. You hear of so many negative reports of the church today to see 11,000 plus leaders there, young husbands and wives, full on for Jesus Christ, worshiping and learning together. The reports of the demise of the church are highly overrated. Don't believe them. We stayed through Sunday because we had a retreat with the work that I'm in, and I got to go to a church in Louisville, Third Street Baptist. A lot of Baptists in Louisville. I remember I could not find a parking place in the parking spots next to the church. I had to drive two blocks to find a parking place. As I got out of my car, people were flooding into the parking lot. And they were grabbing their Bibles and booking it to the church two blocks away. I followed along. I got into the church. It was wall-to-wall people. I felt like a sardine. Then they opened the doors, and I'm not kidding you, the only seat I could find was on the front row (laughs) next to two teenagers. I thought, where in the world am I? Some of you know Greg Gilbert. He's the pastor there. They began to sing, and I want to tell you, that room was too small. We were crammed in there like sardines, and when the people sang, they sang at the top of their lungs. I mean, it was joyful singing. I was glad I had hearing aids. I could turn them down. And then when the, when the missionary got up that was going to give the message, that, and he preached through the whole book of Malachi in 45 minutes, and the people were on the edge of their seats. And since I was in the front row, I was able to go up and talk to the pastor after the service. I mean, my whole body was throbbing that time. And I said, Greg, how is it that the people sing so much, so loudly? How come they come anticipating the time together? What is it that just brings them out like this? And he said, well, it's, it's the Lord that does it. And then he said, every week I remind them, sing, rejoice. This is what the psalmist is doing for us. He's saying, sing, rejoice. Come to worship, anticipating, sitting under the promises of the word of God. So let's do a little attitude check that I have to do every week myself. 
Be honest in your assessment. Do I jump out of my car eagerly looking forward to worship? Or do I come out of a sense of duty? Now, coming out of a sense of duty is not a bad thing. We'll get to that. But be honest. Secondly, in the time after the service and before, do I have spiritual conversations with people? Or is it trivial pursuits? Do we ever get to what's God doing in your life? And in worship, am I praising God with others? Or am I checking my phone and distracted by Instagram? You say, oh, that's very convicting. Well, that's the Word of God speaking to our hearts. What is my attitude when I come to worship? And the psalmist is saying, when you consider what God has done in the great acts of history, and in our own lives, and in our salvation. Come expecting joy. That's the first reason. The second reason he gives us for coming to worship is because worship is commanded. You probably saw that word in verse 4, according to the statute given to Israel. It's commanded for two reasons. One is for unity, 12 tribes coming together. And the second reason is to sit under the obedience of the Word of God. Verses 3 through 5 is the pilgrim's praise for Jerusalem and its worship. And it's reflecting on the house of David, God's anointed king. So the people are coming to Jerusalem to worship under the God's anointed king, unified and submitting to the God's word. Let's read it again, verses 3 through 5. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Don't you like his architectural uh, evaluation? This is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Jerusalem is a place where people come to worship in community. The psalmist sees the dense architecture, the bustling activity there, as signs of life. And the 12 tribes meet together in unity to worship and to conduct legal activities. You see thrones for justice there. Thrones of the house of David. Why? Because worship is commanded. They come together to be unified as 12 tribes. (laughs) You've read the history of Israel. You know the division that came within those tribes. At one point, one of the tribes was almost exterminated in the book of uh, Judges. Uh, They didn't get along together. But here they came together 
to worship God because they realized it's not about our individual tribes, it's about our unity together under the reign of our God. So God commanded worship as a way of bringing together people in unity and under the obedience of his word. Worship is to be a place of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. This is a word for us today, isn't it? When we join together to worship, singles join with marrieds, older saints join hands with the young, the well-resourced sing with those who have less, a PhD student prays with an iron worker, a Spanish speaker listens to the word of God looking over at the deaf members nearby who are learning through an interpreter. And amazingly, in the same role, worshiping together in unity, are independents, libertarians, democrats, and republicans. What a picture of unity. In May, I worshipped in two churches in Germany. One was in a very poor area of the city of Chemnitz, where there's a lot of drug abuse and alcoholism. And here's this little outpost called the Blessing Church. And I had the privilege of speaking to about 30 people who formed the nucleus of that church. People in many cases, who are broken, but have a zeal for the Lord. They're coming together with uh, church planters who have much education. A picture, even in that little group, of unity. I had the privilege of worshiping in Brazil. Uh, Let's see, it was two Sundays ago, in a place called New Life Cathedral. And I saw Christians coming together a great diversity of ethnic groups, and they're praising God in their music and their song, sitting under the sound of the teaching from 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the vision that God has for us and what he commands us to do. The gospel unifies us as we worship the God who created, redeemed, and provides for us. Worship is ultimately not about us, but about God, about others. Worship is commanded here. It's commanded in the three feasts for the people of Israel. And we are commanded to worship whether we like it or not. In worship, God holds us accountable. There are thrones, the throne of our God and the throne of his anointed king. We know that one day God's ultimate king will be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the greater David. So God's word applied brings mercy, teaches us right from wrong, aligns us according to his word. I love what uh, Eugene Peterson said in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He's writing about Psalm 122, and he says this, There's simply no place where these things, 
that is, worship, can be done as well as worship. If we stay at home by ourselves and read the Bible, we're going to miss a lot, for our reading will be unconsciously conditioned by our culture, limited by our ignorance, distorted by unnoticed prejudices. In worship, we're part of the large congregation where all the writers of Scripture address us, where hymn writers use music to express truths that touch us, not only in our heads, but in our hearts, where the preacher who has just lived through six days of doubt, hurt, faith, blessing with the worshipers speaks the truth of Scripture in the language of the congregation's present experience. We want to hear what God says and what he says to us. Worship is the place where our attention is centered on these personal and decisive words of God. Have you ever looked at worship that way? It's not an option for a believer. It's actually commanded by our God for two powerful reasons. To unify us under something greater than ourselves and to teach us to live under the obedience of his commands. So I would bring two applications from this point. The first is, when it comes to worship, don't trust your feelings. I, I th- do I feel like going to worship today or do I not? Don't trust your feelings. Instead, as Eugene Peterson put it, and I really appreciate this, he said, act your way into a new way of feeling. Did you realize that sometimes by just obeying God, the feelings follow? Isn't that incredible? God tells me to do it, and so I do it even though I don't like it. And then I began to think, oh, God had the right idea. It changes everything. When we don't feel like it, we come. As Peterson said, worship is an act that develops feelings for God. I've had people tell me, can you just tell me what's wrong? I just don't have any feelings for God. And I say, do you come to worship regularly? Because it's in the act of obeying God to come to worship where we develop feelings for God because we see his mighty works. That's the first thing. Secondly, not only don't trust your feelings, but be unified. Our unity in diversity is a powerful witness to the non-believers in our community. When we come together in a multi-ethnic setting as much as we can in Cedar Rapids, when we come together from a variety of political viewpoints, when we come together despite our multi-variegated views of the pandemic and vaccines and masks, when we come together and lay those things aside to worship Jesus, people take up notice. It's a powerful witness to the world. And you would think, wow, maybe Jesus even prayed about this in John 17. Worship is a place of joy. Secondly, worship is commanded. We don't do it because we feel like it. We do it because God tells us to do it. And when we do, we become unified and we become obedient to his commands. Something greater 
than ourselves. Third, worship fuels prayer. Verses 6 through 9. Here is a model prayer of the pilgrim. He's praying for peace and blessing upon Jerusalem and the nation. Look at it with me in verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace, and I want you to know three incidences of the word peace here. I, I underlined them in my Bible. I, I found out one time, by the way, I said at my church, Stonebridge, uh, underline these things in your Bible. And afterwards, somebody said, did you realize that a lot of people were using the pew Bibles and they were marking them up? So keep that in mind, I guess. But look for three words for peace. And if you have your own Bible, or maybe you're using a phone app, there's ways of highlighting this. Three uses of peace. Look at it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. You see, I think the three, third reason that he's giving us to worship is because worship fuels our prayer life. Worship fuels prayer for unity and peace and security for God's family and friends. Peace is the word shalom in the Hebrew Bible. He prayed for peace three times because Jerusalem's stability meant stability for the nation. Time and worship energized the prayer for peace throughout the week. I have a quote from Eugene Peterson. He's, uh, he wrote a great book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, but here's what he says about the Hebrew word shalom. Peace is one of the richest words in the Bible. It gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God that, when complete, releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom. Jesus is the ultimate example of shalom. So it's in worship that we learn to pray. We learn to pray for ourselves. We learn to pray for our enemies. We learn to pray for each other. We learn to pray for our neighbors. We pray for our city, for our governing leaders. Worship is the place to learn to pray. And we begin to pray for God's mission, God's house. Now, certainly, an immediate application of this psalm would be pray for Israel. Pray for the nation and for Jerusalem. It is the hot spot of the world. It is the place that, according to Romans 11, God says he has a future for a remnant of Israel. At some point in time, there'll be a revival. And Jewish people will come to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And this psalm would remind us to pray for them. Are you praying for Israel? 
it's God's will that we do. But there's also something here for us. We see in this story of the temple a shadow pointing to a greater reality, the reality of Jesus and the church. Do you remember how Jesus said in John 1.14, John is writing about Jesus, and he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. He is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the tabernacle of Exodus 24. Jesus is the tabernacle and the temple. Just think about this. In Luke 19, 41 to 42, Jesus, knowing that he's about to be crucified, comes to the city of Jerusalem. And he weeps. He weeps over it and he says, if you, Jerusalem, even you had only known this day would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Think about what was going through Jesus' mind and heart at this moment. In Psalm 122, we find a city with the thrones of their anointed King David. Jesus is the greater King David, the ultimate king, coming to his own city. But he knows that though he brings the peace described in Psalm 122, that he will be rejected. And in 70 AD, the temple and city was destroyed. If you're not a, a Christian here today, I would like to tell you that the church is not a facility. The church is not a temple. Jesus said to the woman at the well that we worship in spirit and in truth. The temple is Jesus. Worship centers on the one who died and rose again. It's not a place, it's a person. Jesus is the ultimate worshiper who gladly gave his life in worship and service for the glory of the Father and the love of his people. Go to the end of your Bible and read of the new creation in Revelation 21, 22 to 27. The city of Jerusalem descends, and we, the believers, become a part of that great city. And it specifically states, there is no temple there, because God and the Lamb are the temple. This psalm points to the greater David to come. What brings us together in worship is not a place as beautiful as this facility is. It's a person. We come for him. We come to know him, to love him, and enjoy him.
And if you're not a Christian here today, my hope and prayer for you is that you would repent of your sins and trust in this king and be forgiven and join the throng of worshipers. Second application, if if you are a Christian, keep this in mind, that God's temple in the New Testament, as the apostles applied this truth, God's temple is the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, he says, we as individual Christians are literally living stones being built together into a great house of worship. We are in the presence of the spirit of the living God, his living temple today. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Read through 1 Corinthians. You see Paul confronting these Christians over their disunity. And he gives some threats in chapter 3. He says, if you don't handle my church well, you may get to heaven, but your works are going to be burned up. And then he becomes even more forthright. And he says, and note this, he who destroys the church, God will destroy. Because that's how God views his church, the value of it. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Let that settle in. This is a holy moment. God is with us. We're his temple. His spirit is alive and at work. I had a meeting on Friday at Nubo and I hope I'm not going to embarrass Rebecca by saying this, but I saw Rebecca with three of her, two of her friends working on the fiber work, which is known as knitting. And it reminded me of a story I heard about a lady who was at home with one of these round things, I don't even know what they call them, and she's knitting. And the pastor comes to her door, and she invites him in. And she says to the pastor, I wish I could be like this embroidery. She said, I feel like my life is just kind of out of bounds. I need borders. And the pastor said, come to worship. Worship is what puts borders, security, peace, shalom within us. We need to prioritize worship. It's good to worship online, and we needed it during the pandemic. But now, we need to come together. It sparks joy in the presence of God, number one. Number two, we learn to be unified under the command of our God. And third, it fuels our prayer for the mission of God in our world. This morning as I was reading 2 Chronicles 19 and 20, I was reminded of King Jehoshaphat 
who was overwhelmed at a great army coming against him. Prayed, God help. And God didn't tell him, marshal your troops and fight. God said to him, gather your people together and watch what I do. And what did King Jehoshaphat do? He gathered the people for a praise and worship service. They sang praises to God, believing that he would indeed work. And God won the battle that day. And the nations around them began to fear the Lord. What would happen if Christians in Cedar Rapids began to believe Psalm 122? And the power of the Lord Jesus Christ worked throughout his temple in Cedar Rapids to bring unity and obedience to the truth. Who might come to know Jesus? People whose lives are falling apart. People without borders who need the gospel of Jesus. Who need hope for another day. To need to know that they can find a place of friendship and support when they go through troubled times. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us prioritize worship. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word. It speaks to us so convictingly. I feel convicted myself. It's so easy in this day and age to put worship as just one among many options. Forgive us, Lord. Give us your vision for what you want your church to be. Fill us with your spirit. Give us boldness in this day when so many people are confused and needing the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.